Genesis 23, again in verse 1, now Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Sarah died in Kiriatarba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Chet, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Bible raises an interesting question. In Proverbs 31, verse 10, an excellent wife who can find. Thankfully, it doesn't stop there. <laughs> an excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. And the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. And Sarah was an excellent wife to Abraham. The Bible's clear about this. As Abraham sojourned, Sarah supported him. She honored him. She even obeyed him. I know that's not a phrase that is popular in our culture for a wife to obey her husband uh, isn't something that you, know, you wanna tweet out anytime soon. But she obeyed him as her husband because Sarah obeyed the Lord as her Lord. She knew the heartache of barrenness. Sarah knew the blessing of faithfulness. She knew the sting of duplicity and even the late joy of a son born of faith. Sarah is a great example. She protected Isaac, the covenant child. She fully agreed with the promise of God. She wasn't perfect, but considering who and what she had to work with, she was an excellent wife. There's no doubt. Proverbs 31, verse 28 says, her children rise up and bless her, and so they still do today blessing their mother, Sarah, and of course I'm talking about the people of Israel. Her husband also, and he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. And you can either turn there or just listen, but Peter picks up on this marvelous example of the woman, Sarah. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse one, he says, you wives be submissive, to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. See, that's a different mentality than we have in our world today, that you might submit to someone that they might be won, that you might actually submit yourself to someone who's lost, out of step, in rebellion or disobedience to God. Why would you submit to that, that they might be won? That's the heart of a, of a follower of Jesus, always seeking to win people for Jesus. Not to win arguments, but to win people. It says, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. It says, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, 
And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So listen to those character traits. Peter assigns these to Sarah, a hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That's how Sarah adorned herself. She did what was right. She obeyed her husband. She was not frightened by any fear. Why? Because her fear was of the Lord. And as we've said many times in here, if you fear the Lord, you're not gonna have a fear of man. No one's saying this is easy. It certainly wasn't easy for Sarah. And having traveled with Abraham and Sarah now through many chapters of, of their life, we know it wasn't easy for Sarah. Let me just ask a question. How many of you ladies have ended up in an Egyptian or Philistine harem? Please, don't raise your hands. <laughs> but it's good and it's right this morning to pause and to honor Sarah for who she was as she walked. Isaiah 51 verse one says, listen to me you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one I called him and then I blessed him and multiplied him. So if your faith walk over the last several weeks has been encouraged at all by Abraham or by Sarah, give thanks to God that he gave us such a beautiful example. Human beings living very human lives with very human struggles and yet learning to trust God. And now we come to a very tender chapter in the Hebrew scriptures. Genesis 23 and the, the death of Sarah. In this chapter, we're gonna move through Abraham's grief we're gonna go to a cave for a grave. We'll deal with Ephron's guile, and then we'll end with a guarantee. First of all, consider Abraham's grief. Now, Sarah lived again 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah, so think about how long they were married. Think about the journey they walked together, the relationship that they shared, and now the loss that is Abraham's. Sarah died in Kiriatarba. Kiriatarba means town of the four. It's also called Hebron in the land of Canaan. Why is, it, why is it called the town of the four? Well, four very significant people were buried there, are still buried there today, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. So they called it Kiriatarba. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Anytime I come across teachings in the Bible or sections in the Bible that deal with, deal with dying, burial, with death, with loss, you need to understand the first place my mind goes is who's dealing with that among us right now. The first thing I think is, do I wanna touch on such a tender subject or a subject that could be really sensitive for someone in our fellowship, and there are those of you this morning who are dealing with loss, have recently dealt with loss. And so I, I wanna approach this compassionately and not brutishly, and not just glossing over what is very real. You need to understand that this is the case with Abraham. There was a deep, deep love between these two. A long-standing love for a long-standing relationship. No question, Sarah's death was a blow to Abraham. This is the first mention of weeping in the Bible. And it's Abraham who's doing it. The word weep, bekot, 
is a truly emotional lament. It is bewailing with bitter tears. This is not like, like the hired mourners in the first century who would come along and weep and wail and just make a big show of things. This was a truly deeply heartfelt weeping on the part of Abraham. And I love the fact that when I weep, that there is one who gets it. In the shortest verse of the Bible, you know, we all memorized it, maybe you didn't, but it's a good one to memorize. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. I was so proud of myself when I memorized that as a child. <laughs> Jesus wept. We understand that Jesus understands that in our deepest grief and our heaviest pain, Jesus wept. We see him weep, and as a matter of fact, three times, Jesus, at the graveside of Lazarus, we see him grieving over Jerusalem, and we see him weep in Gethsemane. But his tears at Lazarus' tomb, leaving Abraham just for a moment and thinking about Jesus and his compassion, his understanding, I've always wondered, why do he weep? He's standing outside the tomb of Lazarus, and he knows he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. That's why he missed the funeral. That's why he showed up four days late. That's, that's why he's there. He knows what's about to happen, and yet the Bible says Jesus wept. It's a remarkable scene because it reveals to us the depth of his love for Mary and Martha. And for those who loved Lazarus, Lazarus was coming back. Now some have made the case, well, maybe he was weeping because he was raising Lazarus from the dead and Lazarus was just gonna have to die again. That's possible. But I think it's much more possible that Jesus was moved by those around him. You need to know that's the heart of God. That when you weep, when you mourn, when I feel deep loss, he is there. He understands, he gets it, he weeps with us. Bible says, uh, Psalm 56, eight, you've taken account of my wanderings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David says, God keeps track. See, we weep, we mourn, we go through seasons of grief, and then we eventually come out of them, we eventually move on, the tears dry up and we go to other things. He's never forgotten. He remembers. You keep my tears in your bottle. What David's referring to there, it's interesting, it's a, an ancient Middle Eastern custom where they would literally take small leather, vi leather vials or, or, or little cups and they would catch the tears at funerals. They would save them. Those professional mourners, if they could really work up some tears, that was worth a lot, you know. But they would have these, you can even, I believe you can still buy these in Israel, these little vials for tears. And they did that when a person dies. Well, my friends, God tracks the tears of his people. He is fully aware of our grief. He knows our mourning, he feels our heartache, he is in touch with our pain. And with that, God knows better than anyone else that death is abrupt. That death, regardless of age, is a brash jolt to the living. Yeah, Sarah's 127 years old. By the way, the only woman in the entire Bible whose age is given. And it's not to embarrass Sarah, it's to exalt God. To recognize 
think about this, that not only did he give her a child in her old age, he gave her an additional 37 years with that child. What a blessing. Gave her the opportunity to raise Isaac and to see him grow to a man before ultimately Sarah would pass away. But death is still an invasive interruption into inevitable mortality. It just comes crashing in. Everything stops when a death happens in a family. You don't go to work the next day. Everything just goes on hold. Suddenly the, the heaviness of life is felt when these things happen. When we're forced to recognize life is short. People don't like that. People get weirded out at funerals because it's just such a, a dark reminder of death at the door. Job calls death the house of meeting for all the living. This is the deal. You know, in times past when we've talked about death, I remind you, in our culture, in our country, America today, we don't deal well with death. We do everything we can to hide it, to ignore it, to put it off, to pretend like it's not there. It used to be a much more tender part of, of life. And in other cultures, it still is, where a body would be laid out and there would be viewing, not just for an evening, but for days, where the loved ones would wash the body of the person who had died. Much more intimate and, and much more a part of life. Well, it's not so much in America. We just don't wanna know. We'd rather get back to the gym as soon as possible. I have such deep admiration for Cheryl's grandfather. You all know he's 102 years old. He's staying down at Regency. He's doing very well. Cheryl keeps trying to get him into physical training, and he's like, why? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, go, Grandpa. <laughs> Tell you what, when I'm 102, I'm not going to do anything but sit if that's what I want to do. Watch TV, eat. <laughs> Don't tell me to go work out. For all the goodness of the Sarahs in the world, death remains the closing argument to sin. It's the closing argument. That's it. It's final. And every time we come across death in the Bible, in the scriptures, it's as if the Holy Spirit is reminding us. Romans 5, 12, that just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Even so, the Spirit reminds us in Romans 5.21, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's the good news. That's the upside. The Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Death is the closing argument of sin, and yet Jesus crushed the closing argument of sin and the death penalty. He's our advocate, our defense, right? And like a good defense attorney, he comes into court and he crushes the closing argument of the prosecution, that sin will not end in death. But listen, Jesus doesn't crush the argument by getting it thrown out of court. He crushes the argument by taking the penalty on himself and going to the cross. Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christ follower faces death in an entirely different way than anybody else. We grieve, yes. We mourn, absolutely. We feel the loss, you bet we do. But we have a different perspective And that is 2 Corinthians 5, verse six, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, Paul says, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's the Christ follower perspective. That's where the Christian is different. That while we acknowledge death and we feel the pain of death and we understand the grief that comes with death and we mourn, we do not, the Bible says, mourn like others do who have no hope. It's a different game. We simply want to be pleasing to him. I love that line Paul says, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to God. And hear me this morning when I tell you it is pleasing to God for us to bury our dead. It's pleasing to him for us to bury our dead. I'm not arguing (laughs) burial versus cremation. That's not the point I'm making. But what I'm saying is this. While God's compassion for our mourning is great, there does come a point in time when it pleases the Lord for us to move on with life and not to stay in the place of the dead. Well, how do you do that? By faith, by faith. Then we allow faith to enter mourning. We allow faith to enter the difficult seasons. We allow faith to wash over grief and we move on in life, knowing that life is what matters. As Jesus said, John 6, 63, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. It pleases God for us to bury our dead that we might go on living, even knowing that those who have died in Christ will go on living. John 20, 31 says, these words have been written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. Let me put it to you this way. We must bury our dead if we are to live for Christ although that may not mean what you think it means. But back to the story. Abraham has now wept for Sarah. He has mourned over Sarah. And then, verse three, Abraham rose from before his dead. And he spoke to the sons of Het, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Note that. Out of my sight. It's time to move on. It's time to continue forward. Let me bury Sarah out of my sight. I don't mean to sound cruel or heartless, again, in talking about this, but Jesus never met a funeral he liked. He was not into funerals. He upended and disrupted everyone. But by his own word, Proverbs chapter three, verse one, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven 
a time to give birth and a time to die. And yes, there is, Proverbs 3, verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And so now after Abraham's grief, it's time to find a cave for a grave. That's the second point. Notice what he says to the sons of Chet. He says, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Now, put yourself in Abraham's position. He's mourned for Sarah. He steps out and he looks around and he realizes he's alone. I'm alone. And this world is not home to me. You see, where my wife is, where Cheryl is, is home. That's, for me, it doesn't matter if it's here, it doesn't matter if it's in Israel, it doesn't matter if it's on the East Coast. Wherever I go, when Cheryl's there, when she's with me, I, I have a sense of feeling at home. To lose her, for me, would be to realize I don't have a home here. Now, even with my wife, I don't have a home here. This world is not our home. This is not our long term. This is a short-term deal. But what a reminder, as Abraham loses Sarah, this world never has been my home. I'm a stranger here. I am a sojourner here. And Hebrews 11:13, 13, we've read many times, says all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's Abraham. I'm a stranger and sojourner. I don't even belong among you, sons of Het. By the way, there are three ways that people will typically deal with death. They will deal with death with a hope for life. They'll deal with death with avoidance or by avoidance. Or they'll deal with death with terror. Hope, avoidance, or terror. Which one sounds like you? Do you find yourself in a place of hope when death arises? Would you rather just avoid it, not think about it, get through it as fast as you can, or is there a sense of terror? Listen, anything other than the bright hope for life can be remedied by trusting Jesus Christ as Lord of life and putting faith in Jesus. And this, again, is one of the big differences. Non-believing people don't understand until death hits. And then you've got two options. You can either try to avoid it or you can be terrorized by it. But there is no hope in it if you're not a follower of Jesus. Following Jesus opens the door wide to the hope of eternal life. But Abraham actually faced the terror of death with bright hope for life. He actually did face terror in this moment. I don't know if you know that, but when he goes to the sons of Het, Het, the sons of Het, Bene Het, means the sons of terror. Sons of terror. I don't know if it was like self-named. Ah, we're gonna terrorize people wherever we go. But he goes to them seeking a grave. I find that interesting because Abraham had nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to fear. Heartbroken, yes. Weeping, certainly. Mourning his dearest loss, of course. But fear or terror was the last thing on his mind. Last thing that he would be concerned about. 
Hebrews 11.10 says, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Psalm 23.4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Think about that, the snares of death. Not only the snares of death that capture every person, but the snares of death like fear, like grief, like being troubled. There are snares that come with death. And one of the greatest snares of death is literally fear without faith. That's a snare for people. Fear without faith. I, I was listening just this last week. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a James Taylor fan, not politically, but musically. And uh, I've, I've always loved his music, and he just released this thing called Breakpoint, or Breakshot, and it's an audible uh, autobiography of the years that led up to him getting into music. Just kind of looking at his family background, and it's him just speaking this, this story Cheryl and I have been listening to it, and, and at one point, and I've always wondered about this, what does he really believe? Because if you've heard the James Taylor song, Fire and Rain, he sings, won't you look down upon me, Jesus, you gotta help me make a stand, gotta help me make it through another day. I mean, he's praying to Jesus, and he does that in more than one song. He calls himself a jealous agnostic. When I hear that, it just makes me sad for anyone I'm a jealous agnostic, he says, and goes on to describe that jealousy. He's agnostic. He can't come to the point of really believing, but he's jealous of those who do. And you know what? A lot of people in this world are. We think, oh, it's so hard to share Jesus with somebody. You would be amazed how many people want you to are waiting to hear about this Jesus. James Taylor is a jealous agnostic because he wishes he could have what those who believe have. And he doesn't even understand it in terms of faith. He understands it in terms of community, in terms of support, in terms of a loving family outside your immediate family, people you can go to that actually care for you. And, and he could have that. Anybody can. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14 says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so Abraham, while grieving Sarah, is not afraid, even in the face of the sons of terror, <laughs> He's not afraid of death. He's dealing with death. He's seeking a place to bury his dead. He's moving on without fear because he can. Verse five, the sons of Chet answered Abraham, saying to him, hear us, my Lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead. In the choicest of our graves, none of us will refuse you his grave for burying his dead. Nice guys, these sons of terror. Hey, no, take a grave. Find what we, we will support you in this. We got your back. It's such a magnanimous offer, but what's just happened is they've begun a Hittite real estate negotiation. They're not offering him anything for free. They're offering him to take his 
take a look and see what he wants and thus begin the negotiations, which becomes clear as we go forward. And by the way, this section, Genesis 23, is replicated in other ancient documents of how Hittites negotiated for land. You can follow it through and it's very interesting to see the parallels in other documents of Hittite negotiation. They call him, first of all, a mighty prince. You're a mighty prince among us, Nessi Elohim, which means prince of God. They see something in Abraham. They've heard the stories, no doubt, of Isaac. They see this entourage that surrounds him. They know of his blessings. They can hear the shekels jingling in his robe. And so they begin negotiations. Verse seven, so Abraham, understanding this, he rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Chet, and he spoke with them saying, if it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site, a cave for a grave. Cave for a grave. I gotta pause and tell you something about this cave at Machpelah. It's fascinating. In, in Jewish language and today, if you are talking to a Jewish person, even if they're speaking to you in English, they will refer to it as Merat HaMachpelah. Merat HaMachpelah, which is the cave or caves of Machpelah. And it's in Hebron to this day. Cheryl and I have actually seen it. I was watching a YouTube video about it just this last week and doing a little study, kind of brushing up on the history of the caves at Machpelah and, and what's happened, which I'll share with you in just a moment. But I immediately got off of, of being online and thought, oh man, I wonder if I can take the group down there. <laughs> so those of you who are going are like, I mean, if you've heard anything about Hebron, this is a hotbed. This is a, an probably the most tense place in the entire land because you have ultra-Orthodox Jews and Palestinians living side by side and hating each other. And it is a tense location. Sharon and I, Sharon and I blindly, I've, I've told you that story before. I won't do it again, but we kind of blindly went down there because oh, I want to see the cave of the patriarchs. <laughs> Idiot. But I remember going down there, and so I wanted to, to, to go back. So I did via YouTube, and after looking at it, I was excited. I thought, boy, it would be amazing to go down there and see it again. Take a group. We've never taken a group there. So I, I email Roni. Hey, Roni, what do you think about this? <laughs> the email I got back, we don't take groups there. <laughs> and he went on to say you would need bulletproof bus. <laughs> And the kids will probably throw rocks and stones at any vehicle we took down there. And uh, he said, besides, you know that uh, anything that pops into your mind, we end up doing. So I don't know if that means we'll go. <laughs> probably not, just for safety reasons. But the cave of Machpelah, if you look at it, and, and I encourage you, there's a, there's a really interesting YouTube video by, oh, what's his name? Yehuda Glick. Yehuda Glick. You might look it up, it's about 10 minutes long, and, and he walks up to the end, and you can see it. And, and you can hear him tell a little bit of what I will tell you right now, but I'll give you more than he does. The cave of Machpelah, like the Temple Mount, is surrounded by a massive stone structure. And as a matter of fact, if you look at what, the caves are inside, underneath the stone structure that was built up around it. 
But what's fascinating to me is it's the same stone as the Kotel. That is the western wall of the Temple Mount. Same exact stone because it was the same builder. This wall, this, this stone structure that goes around the caves of Machpelah was built 2,000 years ago by Herod. Erected at that time, and it was lost to the Jews after A.D. 70. When they lost Jerusalem, when they were kicked out of the land, when they were driven from Israel by the Romans. But this structure built by Herod has remained down through the years. It remained through Romans and Byzantines and, and Crusaders and Muslims and Mamluks. And after the Mamluk conquest of 1267, they turned the whole thing into a mosque and Jews were forbidden from entering there. There have always been Jews living in Hebron. Jews who would go up into what was, would be a synagogue or, or a, a, a place of remembrance for Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and, and Jacob and Leah. And even Joseph is in that cave. And they would go there to pray and they would go there to worship God, but they were forbidden entrance by the Mamluks. And so they, for generations, could only pray at what's called the seventh step. And it's an exposed step. It was one of seven steps that led to the tombs originally. And it's just on the outside wall of this cave of Machpelah. And you can see that today, too, that you can go there and there's the seventh step. And, and this side of the wall is rubbed very smooth because of so many Jews that would go and they would pray there consistently over and over and over. So from 1267 to 1967, that was as close as any Jew could get to the cave of the patriarchs. And we'd go and pray at that wall. In 1967, along with the reunification of Jerusalem, as the strength of the Israeli army spread and Israel took more of that territory, for the first time since 1267, Jews were allowed to enter the structure. If you go to it today, it's divided in half, and on one half, it's a Muslim mosque, and on the other half, it's a Jewish synagogue. Only place in the world where the same building houses a mosque and a synagogue. And so you can go and visit that, and Jews can go in there. Cheryl and I, because we were neither Muslim nor Jew, were able to go into both sides. It was really freaky, man. And they have these big caskets in there with these overhangs, and the, the, the bodies aren't in there. It's just, that's just for show. The caves are underneath, but the caves are there. In 1967, there are two times that these caves were, were sought out. 1967, Moshe Dayan, the one-eyed general of, of Israel, also a kind of a, a self-proclaimed archaeologist, he was down in Hebron. At the end of that year, they took a little girl. First, they took a, a soldier, and they tried to lower him down through a cistern. He couldn't get in. It's too big. They found this little girl. Her name was Michal. And they lowered Michal down in there two times on the same night, once with a candle, went down in there holding the candle just to be sure that there was oxygen down in the cave. And then they lowered her down with a flashlight and a camera. When she got down to the bottom of this hole, she found 15 steps that went down. She went down the steps and there was a long corridor that she followed. She measured, she took pictures, at the end of a corridor, there was a chamber. And she went into the chamber, took pictures and measured in there, and came back out. Of course, the Muslims rioted, and they were not allowed to get back in there again. In fact, that, that entrance was sealed up with a flagstone. 
But they at least got some measurements. And she was asked later, Michal is still alive today in Israel, a, an English teacher. And Michal said that she never saw the bones of Abraham or Sarah, or any bones at all, really. But she took measurements and she found the whole experience fascinating. In 1981, a resident, long-term resident of Hebron, a man by the name of Noam Arnon, took some yeshiva students and they went into what's called the Hall of Isaac or the Chamber of Isaac. And they did this. They're not allowed in there except for one time a year the Jews can actually go into what's called the Chamber of Isaac to pray, and that's in the 10 awesome days between, uh, right before Yom Kippur. So they go in there, and, and the whole thing was planned up because they go in to pray, and the prayers are loud, and there's the blowing of the shofar. And so while the shofar was blowing, <laughs> it reminds me, you remember the scene, if you've seen the third Indiana Jones movie, where they go into a museum and they have to break through this, this flagstone to get down underneath and, and he takes this, you know, this museum thing and he goes to smash it right as this guy is hammering on the wall. Yeah. Do you remember that? And the guy hammers and poosh, and the guy looks at his hammer like, what was that? You know? <laughs> Same idea. They're in there and they're blowing shofars and praying and every time they blew a shofar, they smacked this piece of flagstone to try and get in. They broke it loose, pried it up and found, and this is a different location from the original one, as soon as they pried it up, they were looking exactly down at the 15 steps. So they knew they were in the right place. So they went down there, down the 15 steps, down the long corridor, into the chamber. And as they were looking around the chamber, they realized there's, there's air coming from down here, from a different place. And they tracked where it was coming from, they found another stone that was laid down in the corner of the chamber. They pried it up and crawled down in and discovered two caves. Two caves. Machpelah means double. They went into the cave and Noam Arnon said he realized he was crawling on bones. Bones of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, after all of this time, still there. Amazing story. Bones undisturbed for 3,700 years or more. And I mentioned to you, it's also believed the body of Joseph, embalmed in Egypt, but brought back by the children of Israel, is buried there, is in the caves of Machpelah. And it's a fascinating thing. I get really kind of geeked out on, on archeology span and especially where Israel is concerned, it just makes me wanna go back there again. But here's the thing, and I say this when we're in the land, we don't worship stones and bones. That's not the point. We are not among those like the Jewish people who will, to this day, go up and, and put our hand on the wall and, and pray because we're close to the bones of Abraham. But it's fascinating to understand that it's one of those sites in Israel that we know with probably 99.9% .9 certainty these are the double caves of Abraham. The Mirat Hamakfalah. Now, back to the Hittite haggling. Abraham's there. He's already offered full price. He comes right out the gate saying, let me just pay full price and let's be done with it. But Ephron, we'll just call him Zach, Ephron perceived that Abe really, really wanted the cave. And so I call this number three in your notes, Ephron's guile. Look at verse 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Chet, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Chet, even all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. Abraham didn't ask for the field. 
He just wanted to buy the cave. Let me pay full price for the cave, and that's good. No, I give you the field. And the cave that is in it, which implies that you're not gonna get the one without the other. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead, he says. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, if you will only please listen to me, I will give you the price of the field, except from me, that I may bury my dead there. Okay, I'll pay for the field too. And then Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Het, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. <laughs> 400 shekels of silver was outrageous for a cave and a useless field. It's a ridiculous sum of money. Now, today, it would be the equivalent of $3,200. If we're weighing out shekels of silver, $3,200 in silver, so you might think, well, you know, that, I mean, graves today, 2,000, 3,000 bucks is in many places a starting point. At that time, one she 400 shekels of silver, one shekel of silver at that time could feed a family for a week. One shekel of silver was the material, or, or the 400, 400 shekels of silver is the material equivalent of seven and a half years food supply for a family. This is not cheap. This is a huge overprice, and yet Abraham is willing to pay full price, and he counts out 400 shekels of silver. It's not a problem, fine, whatever, whatever it costs, I got it. It reminds me of the time the Lord told David to go offer a sacrifice up on Mount Moriah, Yes, the same place where he called Abraham to offer up Isaac. But by David's time, the ridge of Moriah was now called a threshing floor. It belonged to a man named Arunah the Jebusite. And he said to David, 2 Samuel 24, 23, everything, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said, David said to Arunah, no, 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 I will surely buy it from you for a price for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. What a great attitude. I'm not gonna do something, give something, make an offering to God that doesn't cost me personally. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Catch that. He bought the ridge of Moriah, 50 shekels of silver. Another comparison in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse nine, uh, the prophet paid 17 shekels for an entire field. 17 shekels for a field, 50 shekels for a ridge, 400 shekels for a couple of caves in a tiny useless field. Ephron wants a whopping 400. I will not offer anything to the Lord which costs me nothing but Abraham weighs it out, pays it out. Again, commercial standard. Commercial standard means current according to the merchant. So it was specific, it was weighed out, paid out. Abraham negotiated. And it's interesting because 
Think about what Abraham had, a previous negotiation. Abraham had negotiated with his friend God for 10 righteous souls in Sodom. Do you remember that process? Would you do it for 50? How about 45? What about 40? What about 30? Would you save Sodom for 20? How about 10 righteous people? He, he negotiates, he haggles, if you will, with his friend, trying to save as many people as possible, but he will not haggle over the cash for a tomb. He just pays full price. Let me ask you a question. Is your faith a freebie? What are you willing to pay for salvation? Have you ever thought about it that way? We talk all the time about the free gift of salvation, and it is. We talk about the free gift of grace, and it is. God gives it, there's nothing you can pay for it, there's nothing you can do to earn it. You cannot earn your way into heaven. The Bible is absolutely clear on that. By grace we are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God so that no man can boast. But what if we stop for a moment and ask the question, what am I willing to pay to follow Jesus? If there was a cost involved, what would eternal life be worth to you? What would you be willing to give up for it? Jesus said in Luke 14, 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, this is interesting to me, and it's convicting in my own thinking, because I understand salvation comes by the free gift of grace, but there is a cost to finishing well. What are you willing to pay? Instead of how much can I get away with? What does the Bible really say about tithing? Do I really have to give 10%? No, you don't have to. Grace is free. What are you willing to? What are you willing to give that costs you to the Lord Jesus? Did you know that some of the most expensive burial plots on the planet are in Israel? Average in Israel for a burial plot is $5,000, American. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, burial plots run from twenty-two dollars to $50,000 a plot just to bury your dead. Some are even more expensive than that. Why? Who would pay $50,000 for a burial plot? Someone who's waiting for Messiah to come? See, because the Jewish people understand Zechariah 14, verse four, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and so at the resurrection, they wanna be as close to Jesus as possible, or at least as close to Messiah. The tragedy is so many Jews who are buried on that hillside of the Mount of Olives don't believe Messiah has come yet. They're looking for the first coming of Messiah rather than his second. But why does Abraham pay full price here without haggling for a cave in Hebron? Expectation. Don't miss this. He's willing to pay whatever it takes for that cave. Why that cave? Remember, Abraham's already been promised this land. Right, The entire promised land is a promise, a covenant God made with Abraham. I'm gonna give all this land to you, to you and your descendants. Man, look, walk the land. 
Look about, I'm giving it to you. He settles in Hebron. And there in Hebron, these two caves, he wants the two caves. Why does he want them so bad? He's been made a promise, not just the two caves. <laughs> Abraham's been promised the whole falafel. But verse 17 says, so Ephron's field, which is in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, or before the face of Mamre, which means to the east of, in the field, and the cave which is in it, and the trees which are in the field, that were within the confines of its border were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Chet before all who went in at the gate of the city. Again, this is a standard Hittite deed of trust. And it's comparable to other ancient documents. But it's legal proof then and now that this cave belonged and belongs to Abraham. Why full price? Why this cave when the whole land is his anyway? And today, the Muslim waqf, that is the Muslim authority in Hebron, still denies the place has anything to do with the Jews. Although they call it al-Haram al-Ibrahimi, the sanctuary of Abraham. But they reject any Jewish claim to the caves of Machpelah. And according to Israel 7, Arut Sheva, on July 7th, 2000, or yeah, 2017, you're gonna love this. The World Heritage Committee of UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, <laughs> announced their decision to award Israel's Cave of the Patriarchs, Merat Hamakpalah. They awarded the ownership of this, the UN, to convicted terrorist and Hebron mayor, Tiasar Abu Sanina as a representative of Fatah in the Palestinian Authority. The resolution in the UN passed 12 to three with six abstentions and declares this site, the Cave of Machpelah, to be an endangered site and a Palestinian heritage site. My friends, the proof is in the deed and you have the deed sitting in your laps. This is a legitimate Hittite title deed for land. The way it's written out in Genesis 23, the title deed, this land belonged to Abraham. Abraham had, number four, God's guarantee. This is yours. It all belongs to you, but, but we have the title deed here. And Yehuda Glick, in, in taking a group and talking about this area there at the cave of Machpelah, makes a really good point. The Jews have the land. It's promised to them, but they buy it anyway. They pay full price for it anyway. As Jews began flooding back into the land, they paid enormous sums of money for muddy bogs and mosquito-infested land that was a complete disaster when they bought it. But they bought it by legal deed of trust, exactly what Abraham has right here. And verse 19 says, after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, so the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Het. Listen, UNESCO has no say here. This is the title deed. And again, if you look back to Genesis 13, Genesis 13, verse 14, 
The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and its breadth. I will give it to you. And Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Everything in the, as far as I could see, belonged, was promised to Abraham one day. And yet, as I've said many times in this study, he only bought one tiny plot. He only invested in two burial caves and an ugly little field in front of it. And that's it. Abraham believed God's guarantee. Abraham trusted in the Lord for all the land, not just for a lifetime, not just for his posterity, but forever. But he bought those two caves. Why? Why those two caves? There's coming a day. There's coming a day when Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah and yes, even Joseph will walk out of that cave. He bought that cave. Really, it's the same mentality behind why Jews will spend so much to buy a burial plot in the, on the Mount of Olives. It's hope of resurrection. Jews who don't believe Messiah has come yet are hoping to be resurrected by Messiah who returns to, who comes to the Mount of Olives. They don't think returns, they think come for the first time. But they wanna be right there. Abraham dwelling in this region around Hebron, Hebron, buys the two burial caves and they become for him his front porch to the promised land. That he can just walk right out into the land that was promised to him. Merat, Hamakpalah, again means double. Double cave, because there are two. But it can also mean, get this, double door. In other words, a door that swings in and a door that opens out. A tomb with a view. <laughs> it's caves that will be exited, entered in death, exited in resurrection. And that's why he was willing to pay whatever it cost just for that. That he would be there, his body would be there in the land at the time of resurrection, he would walk, walk right back out to familiar territory, to the land of his sojourn. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Which is why for the Christian, to bury our dead is a temporary sorrow. We know the doors are gonna swing open. We know that there is a salvation ready to be revealed. But you know, that's really not what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. There's a very practical approach to our salvation. Our salvation that's ready to be revealed here in the last time. And here it is. 
bury your dead. Bury your dead. I gotta tell you, reading chapter 23 was like a hammer to the forehead. If you read it through for the first time and you're not thinking about it, you're not really ready, and you start to read through it and you see that Sarah dies, and all of a sudden, seven times in this chapter, it says, bury your dead. It's like, bury your dead, bury your dead. I'm like, it's Sarah. Why didn't he say, that I might bury my wife, that you might bury your beloved. No, bury your dead. It's, it's brutish. It's harsh. And I kept hearing this over and over. Bury your dead, bury your dead, bury your dead. Note this. Look back at verse four. Abraham said, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. You know what Abraham does next? Chapter 24, verse one, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord. I know it's weird. Go back and listen to Wednesday night. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son, Isaac. You get it? Abraham, after burying his dead, is moving right on to the next phase of the covenant. Sarah's buried out of his sight. And Abraham doesn't go back into his tent and die. He doesn't go back into his tent and settle. He doesn't sit there and weep and moan for the rest of his life. He has buried his dead. Time to move on. Time to continue in the Lord, time to trust in faith. It's time to get a bride for his son. Bury your dead. The old man, the old woman, who you used to be. The person that Satan loves to remind you of, bury your dead. That's why we die in Christ. That's why baptism is a picture of burial. Bury your dead. The things maybe that you're clinging to, of the old you, of the old person, things that you have in your life that have nothing to do with the eternal, bury your dead. Your successes, your failures, your glories, your sins, your achievements, your fiascos, past joys, previous sorrows, bury your dead. It's time to move on. It's time to step forward. It is time for the bride to come home to the sun. Father, I pray that you would give us that insight this morning, a simple story, a tender story in the burial of Sarah, and yet, Lord, we need to bury our dead. We need to move forward in faith. And I pray if there is anything that is ensnaring, anything that is an entrapment, anything that is slowing down the walk of any one of us in the sanctuary this morning, Lord, give us the faith to bury our dead. To bury our dead out of our sight. And to walk with faith and not by sight. We ask for this grace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.